Welcome to Fill the Gap, the official podcast series of the CMT Association, hosted by David Lundgren and Tyler Wood. This monthly podcast will bring veteran market analysts and money managers into conversations that will explore the interviewee's investment philosophy, their process, and decision-making tools. By learning more about their key mentors, early influences, and their long careers in financial services, Fill the Gap will highlight lessons our guests have learned over many decades and multiple market cycles. Join us in conversation with the men and women of Wall Street who discovered, engineered, and refined the discipline of technical market analysis. app is brought to you with support from Optima, a professional charting and data analytics platform. Whether you're a professional analyst, portfolio manager, or trader, Optima provides advanced technical and quantitative software to help you discover financial opportunities. Candidates in the CMT program gain free access to these powerful tools during the course of their study. Learn more at Optima.com. Good afternoon, David Lungard, and welcome to Fill the Gap, episode 25, here for January 2023. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Happy New Year. I, uh, I have to report to you that I, I finally went skiing for the first time this season, okay. which is just tells you how miserable it's been in New England for skiers. Yes, no it snow. has. Well, getting in a few good runs is uh, an important uh, aspect this time of year. And certainly for us, uh, when we're on the slopes, in the chairlift, or uh, or driving back from the mountain, listening to uh, the interviews of Fill the Gap is a great way to brush up on our, uh, our skills, our process and tools, and no better uh, than Patrick Kent to take us through his process and approach as a portfolio manager and analyst over the last 25 years. Sorry, Pat, had to throw you under the bus there. Uh, we're all <laughs> dating ourselves. But uh, Dave, I wanted to ask you, what really stood out uh, from this month's interview with Patrick Kent, CMT charter holder? Yeah, I mean, I, well, as our listeners will discover, he's he's a pretty eclectic guy. I mean, he's he's all over the map in terms of things that he does outside of the uh, investment business, which uh, I'll, I'll save for the interview and let people learn through the discussion. But so so because of that, there were just a lot of gems uh, that he brought in from life in general. And but for me, I think at the end, he's he's a very uh, thematic investor. And I, in, at the very, very end of the discussion, he just said, you know, maybe maybe this is just for later and maybe you'll edit this out. But what I have found, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing him here, but he said, I have found that marrying thematic investing with technicals is really powerful, and I and I, I just couldn't agree more with that because at the end of the day, I think it might have been Mark Minervini who one day one time said that um, the more explosive the earnings and the more uh, sort of futuristic and, and thematic the the investment concept is, the harder mm-hmm. it is for fundamental managers to get their minds around it and put valuations on it and really truly understand what the future looks like. But that's when technicals can really come in handy because the market. Grasps grasps all of that rather quickly, certainly quick, more quickly than any indivi- most individual humans. And mm-hmm. so, a perfect example would be, um, you know, Bitcoin when it first broke out and made its first one run to twenty thousand. I mean, 
you know, back then, and I would even argue today still, people have a hard time understanding what really is the blockchain and how is it really going to change the world. We, we still don't quite know yet. But mm-hmm. uh, if you just um, overlaid your fundamental views on this, what's clearly a, a world-changing technology with the trends that unfold, you know, technicals would have had you in that trend uh, for all of 2021 or t- into mid-2021, to and then it would have had you out uh for you know ever since then so um and i think if if you're relying on themes to sort of guide your investing and then Mm -hmm. technical analysis to help you size it which patrick talked a lot about i thought that was one of the many great uh, comments that he made in terms of how to tie fundamentals with technicals absolutely and and as a uh, as a component piece of the whole investment discipline i mean patrick just the simple stuff like uh prioritizing what you're looking at yeah. where do you spend more time doing deeper analysis or questioning your thesis well mm-hmm. you're looking at the charts that are breaking down in the face of what uh maybe is a longer duration or longer uh horizon uh investable idea uh, on a fundamental basis uh, but the the comment that Patrick made that really stood out to me, and I think for investors across the industry who are thinking about raising capital or or how to attract clients to their fund, um, he he really takes on the responsibility of an active portfolio manager who's creating something that's not easily replicable. Meaning, you can find passive uh, index funds, you can find fa- factor-based ETFs on mm. uh, a number of different aspects of of the industry, and so. For Patrick and his team, it's not about just capturing a factor, but as an opportunistic small mid-cap and uh, 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 mixed uh, portfolios, what they're looking for is idiosyncratic risk. And I think for a technical analyst uh, like Patrick to bring that differing uh, ability, a different viewpoint to everything that he's investing in, it's helping him create uncorrelated uh, portfolios. And that was that was really a standout to me and something right. that I think all of our listeners could keep in mind as we're trying to figure out how to uh, change the active management space and, and create uh, outsized returns for clients. So without giving too much detail of Patrick's incredible career as a bass player, as a black belt, as, uh, as many things beyond portfolio manager, let's let our listeners dive into episode 25 of Fill the Gap. Welcome to Fill the Gap, the official podcast of the CMT Association. In this episode, we have the great pleasure of talking markets, technicals, and hopefully some music with my friend and former colleague, Patrick Kent. Patrick is a CMT charter holder, and we got to know each other navigating the post-GFC bull market during my years at Wellington Management in Boston. I'll let Patrick give us the, the, uh, the deep dive on his career, but he's currently a portfolio manager over at Newton Investment Management in Boston, where as a fundamental manager, he leans heavily on technical analysis to help with idea generation, risk management, and position sizing. Patrick, it's great to see you. Welcome to Fill the Gap. Thanks for having me. We've been talking about doing this for a while, so this is great. Yeah. Uh, I've been excited to be a part of it. I've managed to, to just sort of, you know, wean my way in here. <laughs> Leaning heavily on our past relationship. Dave, you have to get me on the podcast. No, no, it's it's great. I mean, it's a testament to the quality of the selection of guests we have. The list is very long and you've been on the list for a very long time. And uh, I, I in particular wanted to get you on because one of the one of the goals here for the podcast is to really highlight CMT charter holders that are really thriving with their charter. But if we can find one who's not just doing technical analysis, but who, who is primarily doing fundamental work, which I, I consider you one of the great 
fundamental managers and, and uh, analysts that I've worked with over the years. But on top of that, you you use technicals heavily. And I think that's really the dots we're trying to help the investment community connect. And I think our conversation today will really go a long way towards doing that. No, that's great. So, yeah. yeah. So before we get into markets and all the other things, why don't you give our listeners uh, a little bit of insight into your background, uh, what got you to technicals in particular, what was that light bulb that went off for you, and then kind of give us a little bit of the journey through your career. Yeah, sure. Well, I'll start with the second one because that's easy. I've I, I realized early on in my career, just observing people working in the industry that had no one claimed to be a technician, but yet the first question anyone asked when you brought up a stock was, you know, to look at the price chart and pull that up. And that's it. they don't go right to the balance sheet. They don't go right to the income statement. They go right to the price chart to see what it's done, what what it's been doing recently. And so it was very clear to me that, you know, that that helps or people think that way. So it's best to sort of, you might as well understand what you're looking at as opposed to doing it from right. a, you know, just a, a sort of uh, from a place of somewhat ignorance, I guess, or just from or from just your own you know, experience, like it's better to actually maybe have looked at the space and understood it. But yeah, right. going back, I mean, my background, I'm, uh, I've been a, you know, fundamental analyst portfolio manager now for like, I think 25 years, I guess now uh, that's, Ouch. that's, yeah, ow, that, <laughs> that, hurt. That, hurt, that hurt me a little bit. <laughs> just I feel doing your pain, I've been at it longer. <laughs> just doing that math for a second there, that was uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I started on at Schroeder's on a small and mid-cap strategy, and then at and then at the Boston company, which, which I've returned to now, which is Newton Investment Manager now, but this is the old Boston company. And through time doing long short at, at CR Intrinsic, and then also, and then at Wellington doing opportunistic again. So I've been an opportunistic investor most of my career, just to say it's not really growth, it's not really value, it's it's a little bit of both. It's looking for, you know, I'd say whether it's growth at a reasonable price or sometimes it can be a mix of deep value or other things. I mean, really looking for what I call, you know, expectations gaps where understanding where something's really mispriced relative to what I think its intrinsic value is. I think where I where I came to technicals, as I say, it was I was always sort of an amateur technician from early on, just because I saw that people did really look at price charts and I saw that it was a a field that or part of the industry and an area of expertise. And so I followed some technicians and read some work and, and was interested in that. But I think I got more serious about it in sort of, I'd say, yeah, 06, 07 and into 08 when I then actually went for the the CMT exam and really got wanted a syllabus and to really go through it. Mostly because I was looking for a risk management tool. I mean, when I had gone, you know, early on, I think when I worked, you know, at on the opportunistic strategies at the Boston company, which just to declare, so I used to work as an analyst on these strategies. I then had worked long short, worked at Wellington, and then I came back to run these strategies that I was working on early on. So these these the small and mid cap opportunistic strategies that I run today are the ones I worked on almost twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, <laughs> the, now. the same strategy, the same strategies. Oh wow! wow. And now I'm back around. So I didn't run them back then. I just worked on them as an analyst. But now, yeah. But yeah, it's been uh, so. I think I was really really became most I think useful to me when I moved to long short. So I was, you know, I was kind of an opportunistic investor and I have some real, I have some, we can get into sort of my thinking about what, what that means and the, and the process around what I do yeah, for, uh, for opportunistic, but, but to say, but I had really 
started off by you know wanting to apply that in a long short environment and so i went over to long short hedge fund as a sac capital um, for several years and that was you know it was interesting to see i quickly realized like i needed more tools to manage risk right if you're sort of trying to manage positions like that whether they're long or short and especially where there could be, a, there was a little more of a high velocity trading around some of that. It, you really needed to understand overbought. You needed to understand oversold. You need to understand what was, you know, what was sort of, I think, normal price action versus abnormal price action and being able to read that well so you knew. And as I say, it was really a risk management tool because I always consider myself fundamental first. And I, you know, as my a colleague of mine likes to say, and I agree with him, fundamentals make the charts, right? So yep. I always 100%. feel like you have, so as you, so as a fundamental investor, I've always used technicals to sort of affirm or or deny something that I already think, right? So is it, does it cause, if I have a thesis on a on a position, and then I have a, and I think Dave, you and I've talked about this year, years ago in the past. I was like, if I, if you give me a thesis, I can kind of draw for you what that chart should probably look like given that thesis, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And so if that's true, then you want to be along, you want to be asking questions when it starts to diverge from what, from the action that you would expect to see under right. that, right? I think of oftentimes, and you probably, in, in many of the episodes, I'm sure you've talked some about your process as well. And I know mm-hmm. like a, a favorite place of opportunistic investing is in the down and out, but turning, right? That's right. definitely yeah. like, and, <laughs> and you know what those are going to look like. And you know, yeah. then when you should be pressing those and where you should be and where you should feel like you're confident that it's evolving in the way that you'd expect and when you should be concerned that it's maybe not it's it maybe it, it's it's going to stay down and out and not going to turn right like you can yeah. you can the price will start to tell you what questions you should be asking and you know and i think that's for us like for the research platform we have now at newton you know since we've we've got a lot of different vectors we can look at that so we've got a really good quantitative team but we've also got you know we've got a full analyst team but in addition to that, we've got an investigative team. And so that's a great place to be focused on, you know, asking real questions that, you know, they can really go out and do primary research. Their their background's more like investigative journalism. And so, you know, when we have key questions, we really want to understand about competitive dynamics, about maybe it's about a, you know, competitive moat, something about a company will we'll really go out and sort of set them loose to to talk to people in the industry to really get a better sense of how it might be how it, that's, you know landscape is evolving that's really unique is that is that um are they like generalists in that sense and that the, in the sense they are i consider them yeah like, i consider them almost like a more like a swat team right you, you sort yeah. of drop them into specific things that you want uh, questions about yeah so talk to me about those moments when 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 you own a position you've imagined what the chart looks like the chart looks like that, so everything's copacetic, everything's moving along, but then the the chart starts to break down. Well, how do you let that work its way into your decision making in the portfolio? Do you do anything, or at what point do you do something about it? I it, yeah, I think we always. I think as soon as I feel like it's going, you know, it's it's acting aberrantly from what I would sort of anticipate or expect, or the or the price action itself is starting to deteriorate. If the like if the internal is going down on volume, it's making lower yeah. highs, like that types of thing. I think you want to start ask. You want to press your thesis more. I think that's where I you know it comes down to like if you think of all the think of it this way. In any given day, you know, you have a to do list of all the things you could be 
working on, right? Yeah. It's new ideas. It's things you want to you want to look at for existing ideas. It's trades you need to make. I say like I use the technicals to sort of prioritize things, right? Like yeah. if you've got you know if something's starting to break down, well that jumped up the list on like hey we were we wanted to double check some things or rerun these numbers. Like you better put that high on the list. Yeah, right? I love that. You better, That's great. You better start looking at it right. Like let's get to it right now. Yep. And what were the key what were the key drivers of this thesis? Let's make sure we know. Is there has there been anything? that gives us sense that like, what are the, you know, I think, you know, and, and sometimes that can turn out to be like, don't no, we feel okay about it? And, you know, sometimes charts do resolve themselves. Like they may look like they're concerning and then they resolve, but other times you, you start to lose your conviction in it. Right. And then you say, like, All right, I think our thesis might be broken here. And so it's better to be early and move quickly out of those as opposed to lingering in them. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, as an opportunistic investor, I really try not to be, you know, value first in the sense that I, I if if we don't have a thesis you know around kind of an event path and a real expectations gap i i don't want to own something just because it's cheap right i mean it's not there's sort of there's not the that's certainly a key thing and i and one of the first things we, i talk about with our strategies is like that you know buying something at a discount to intrinsic value is exactly is always what we're trying to do i have a kind of a my own proprietary sort of version of a DCF I've kind of just built over the years that's been to meant to solve for some of the problems with that I think discounted cash flow analysis has. But both both from a like theoretical level and also from just a user operator basis. Like I think you can torture a DCF to tell you anything you want unless you put some very clear parameters on it. Yeah. So so I've kind of just built some guardrails around this model. So you you can only you can't it won't allow you to like torture it too much. Right. But the key is that I'm trying to buy things at a discount to intrinsic value with significant change elements in place. And so when I want it like so I I look at like the technicals again like help me understand you know, if you're either buying something where is it opportunistic because it's a pullback to a very strong uptrend, well, then that that can be opportunistic. Is it opportunistic because it's been down and out, you know, to use your terminology, it's down and out, but starting to turn? Yeah. Like that's that could be opportunistic, right? These are like, those are the types of things. Or maybe it's something that's had, you know, it's it's completed a triple bottom and and kind of and now it's breaking out and you can and you know you're now from a fundamental perspective you know your sources of controversy you know where to do the work like go in and say all right we can already that's why like pulling up a price chart i feel like you can already when you're doing the work on a company i feel like you can already just pull up the chart look for the Look for the moments in that chart that tell a lot of the story, right? The big gap ups, the yeah, the break right. the breakdowns, the like these different periods of consolidation, and then go back and just read what the conversation was during that time, right? And like it'll give you a big sense of like how people think about the company and the fundamentals. And the key is like not to just think of it in terms of a time series, but more think of it in terms of these these points of interest, right? Where that because that will help it. Where were the controversies that came yeah. up that showed up in the price, right? It went sideways and consolidated for two years before breaking out. So there must have been some kind of, you know, concern or had to digest earlier price action. And so you can really, I think these are the things that I want to bring into an analysis very early, not not sort of at the, you know, not as tail end or not just as a tacking it on to the, the process. Yeah, I like that. It's it's almost like the uh, knowing the story and how it's unfolded over the years and how how the the chart responded to those stories. They become important reference points going forward in terms of knowing what made those things happen. And then in terms of being important 
points on the chart along the way because of what drove those that 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 outcome on the chart that it can become important supply and demand reference points which is really classic technical supply and demand analysis right yeah and so i mean yeah because any stock any stock you're looking at right is by definition you you've come into the movie like it's already been going on right it's like if you start if you're just coming to it like a an investor i worked with years ago i said is this new information or is it just new to you right like so it's sort of like you can come in and, and you want to know you want to quickly at least get some sense of what the history has been here so that like you're not just kind of coming in and thinking it's all <laughs> this is all fascinating it's all new to me <laughs> you're like well there's probably been people looking at this and trading it for a long time <laughs> yeah you can assume that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Patrick, about sort of the time frame. What's what's tactical or, or strategic in your view in terms of months to years of holdings? And and when you talk about the emotions or or looking for a chart that might resolve, I just pulled up the technology sector from 2007 going into 08. And you had really significant damage in Q4 and, and Q1 of 2008. But by mid-year, technology regained a lot of ground and that, you know, hopeful, you know, hope is not a strategy, but I think a lot of investors get caught up in that, oh, hey, it's coming back. You know, this was a, this was a difficult consolidation within, you know, an otherwise really strong uptrend. H- how do you, how do you guys think about timeframes and how do you deal with that? You know, the industry loves to call it a dead cat bounce when you get those sort of recovery moves after that first leg down. Yeah. I mean, uh, boy, so that's a good. Those are a couple different questions there. I mean, first, so I'd say my standard time frame, in the sense that like my my standard chart set that I would kind of use to look at companies, and, I, and and once a week I'll usually just flip through everything in the portfolio at least once to just sort of see how they look. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of like a is like a weekly candlestick chart over you know two, three, four years to sort of give a sense of like, you know, how does this, how is this trending now? Like from a relative strength perspective, how is it looking on the weekly, the weekly candles? So Mm -hmm. I kind of get a, that tells me more of a story because I feel like, you know, I've often said to some of my, some of my colleagues who are, you know, pure fundamentalists and who Mm -hmm. really, really, really do not want like to be thinking about technicals, which I'm like, all right, sure, whatever. Yeah. I mean, those start, are also known as closet technicians, by the way. <laughs> they just don't want you to know they're looking at the well, charts. Exactly. I want, I want to say it was probably Frank Texera at some point. He said, like, you know, if you want to find stocks that are going to outperform relative, you might want to start by looking at stocks that are outperforming relatively. <laughs> Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, you did say you're looking at both absolute and relative on everything in the portfolio every week. Yeah, is that right? I mean, I, I try to at least run through them and look for things that, again, just like things that because it creates a work list, right? Like, are there yeah. things that like would do? Should is this a good ad? Is this something we should be concerned about? Is it something? Wow, that's developing even better than I thought. Is something going on here that we better than we even anticipated? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it just that the sector's all moving? Is it just like, or is it, you know, is a sector in favor? Right. Is it a, is this an individual move? Is it a sector move? But so that's sort of my standard one. But I was going to say, I what I what I was getting to with talking to some of my colleagues, it's like, you know, you bring a stock in. One of the ones that I usually the first chart I'll bring up for anyone who's a, not a technician mm-hmm. is a logarithmic chart of like ten or fifteen years if a stock has that has a really good like history, right? Yep. Because I just look at it and say, if this stock has gone sideways in a logarithmic chart for 10 years, 
I'll yeah. just be like, just start from a place that the company you are pitching to me has not created real value for 10 years. Yeah. Now go. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's going to be a quick conversation. Like now, now continue. Now, what was your, what was your pitch? I just wanted yeah. to, so then versus like, you want a level set, like, okay, if you're calling for this thing to outperform, it hasn't in a, like ever. So yeah. that's a yeah. big difference. Like you should know that if you're, you better be making a significant call on a change in the industry dynamics, a change yeah. in like something massive must have right. changed if you're, if you're going to make that call, right? Versus yeah. it's an easier one if you're coming in and I pull that chart up and it's like, well, you know, this company's got some controversy around this, but, you know, I think pricing's getting better and this could be a good, and you pull it up and it's like 15 years of just a ruler up into mm -hmm. the right. And yet it's a bottom end of a channel. You're like, yeah, this is probably right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Is, sounds good. <laughs> Love it. Like, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's just already you're like framing it just a little bit like value creators versus value destroyers right away because you want to know that before you even start. Like, what am I up against? Am I the odds stacked here in my favor or are they not when I'm, mm -hmm. when I'm walking into this idea? Mm -hmm. and that no, doesn't mean there can't be industries that change dramatically, right? I mean, I, the one that I showed you how long my career is. The rails were like left for dead in the late 90s, early 2000s. And a technician would have caught that they were breaking out of a base that went back on relative and absolutes on a long time frame. And it was like, you know, you the, all the signs were there that it was like finally coming together. And then they've had, they've become, in the last 20 years, these have become like just effectively monopolies right like there's regional monopolies that are allowed to have enormous operating margins and and people think of them as just ballast in the transport you know sector but they were like hate they hadn't returned their cost of capital in years like for so there was like a big significant change that happened yeah that that's was why Buffett bought uh, burlington northern right and that's i think that's that he was even kind of yeah i'd say it even started earlier than that but he can he kind of came to it almost kind of late but, it, but yeah, he, yeah. he was still relatively early in the, right. in the development of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you made a comment that I, I didn't want to uh, let slip for our, our listeners because it was super important. And it really highlights the, the value of technical analysis. You, you made the comment that you, you can torture the discounted cash flow model to tell you pretty much anything you want. And I, and I just want to highlight that, that no matter what you do, you cannot torture a chart to say something other than what it's saying. It's either in a downtrend or it's not. I mean, you know, so that's the value yeah. of it. It's like you can say what you want. But if you use this as your final check, your final sanity check is, does the market agree with me? If it doesn't agree with you, that's fine. You can still do the trade, but maybe make it smaller as a fundamental manager. Wait till the market agrees with you vis-a-vis -vis trend changing and trending in the direction that you said earlier, Patrick, you know, fundamentals make trends. So if you think the fundamentals are good, but the trend is bad, then they're bad fundamentals. Just wait, right? That's, yeah, the, that's yeah. the power you're, of you're bringing them together. You're, you're clearly early in whatever story right. you're telling is clearly early because the market hasn't picked it up yet. That's just fine. I mean, but exactly. again, that can also be like, yeah, I, I, I don't run a technical fund in the sense that that's not what's driving every the decision. We will own things that have bad price charts because we have a longer dated thesis and maybe we think there is a value underpinning it. But boy, it'll really adjust my sizing preference. Right mm -hmm. now is not the time to have all your chips on it. Like you may want to say, all right, well, we're gonna we'll we'll put a we'll put a, put a little bit there. Here the thesis. It actually sounds pretty compelling, and we'll kind of wait for the wait for it to start to develop a little bit. Maybe we'll put a little bit there, but but I'm not certainly not going to make until we feel like it's more constructive. You don't really want to be making a um, enormous you know yeah right bet there. So you know you you have you have the unique perspective of being a, both a fundamental manager 
and a technical manager who has also done long short. So given your philosophy and how you think about things technically and fundamentally, fundamentally first, granted, do you just turn your thesis upside down to find shorts or is it, do you, or do you weigh technicals more yeah. heavily when you're short? I mean, I or? look at it this way. Well, this actually ties back to your question about looking at absolute choice charts and looking at relative charts. I look at relative charts a lot. Relative charts are, as a long only manager, super important because you do run long short. You're just short the benchmark, right? That's everyone's a long short manager if you're in the industry. You're just, you just are only running one side of the book. So if you're short the benchmark, you need everything to be better than that, right? Or at least over some time frame, it needs to be better than that. So it's helpful to at least be tracking like what's happening on a relative basis with each of these companies. You can get fooled by, I think you can get fooled by absolute price action on that, especially if like, you know, the markets, if the sector's good, the markets be like, you know, markets up or like you can, you can think, oh, well, this was a great stock. And then you look and say, well, actually it didn't even really do that great from a relative perspective. And I could have, there were other things that were even better. So, I mean, that's, so that's an easy one to try to make sure you're looking at. I was going somewhere with that. No, I forgot. There's a reason I went there. We can circle back. To oh, long short. No, no, it's long short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't really run long short right now. This was unfortunate because it's been a really good market for shorting. Yeah. But the, I, I would actually say, I think the easiest pace people blow themselves up in shorting is doing exactly that, flipping your thesis around. Like if your short is the mirror image of your, the enantiomer of your longs, you're actually going to get killed as a long short manager more often than not. You don't, because you're taking too much factor risk, like on both sides of the book. So I like fundamentals first. I also like tacticals. I also do some quant and I do look at like, I do look at factor footprints in the portfolio. I try to make sure my portfolios are mostly idiosyncratic risk. Like this is part of our sizing as well. I'd say technicals and some of our contribution to risk are big things we use in terms of I use for sizing positions. So I think when you're talking long short, yeah, I think there's a different, it's not just the, certainly fundamentally, it's not the opposites of your your theses, right? With technician, that's a little different because I think you can make a case that like, you know, stocks that are breaking down are the ones you don't want to own and probably the ones you want to short, right? And yeah. similarly, right, it's, how many, I mean, you know, I mean, you've, you've probably got more stories, more stories of these than even I do. I mean, how many people have just killed themselves trying to go big game hunting in short stocks, right? I mean, how many people have donated money to like the short Tesla over the last like, you know, or there's like, and I'm, that's, I'm not making an investment opinion on Tesla one way or the other. I'm just saying that's just a fact. I mean, stock was up a lot, right? So yeah. it's just, it's not in my market cap range anyway. So, so I just, as like, you know, that's sort of, you could see how, you know, but there was consistently short interest in it, right? And very vocal shorts on it. And I think that's just conceptually, that's something we like to keep in mind that like people love to sort of like go against very strong charts when I think the, you know, something I learned very early on through both technicals and just try to, and, you know, scrape knees and elbows was just like, do that's not the best place to go shorting. Like, Short, you're much, far better off just shorting weak charts like that are like almost right. The best ones are the ones that sort of just kind of yeah dribble away. It's not necessarily you know playing for the big crash that yeah. you know in some yeah. high flying stock. No, it's nice to catch to, it, but it's not often that you do. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Patrick, you mentioned uh, scaffolding into positions. Like if you if you have a very small position because the fundamental thesis tells you it's uh, it's undervalued or mispriced, 
do you use technical analysis to find additional entries up the trend? Like, and do you Absolutely. use any specific yeah. specific tools, momentum thrusts or, or pullbacks? Yeah, what, so what do you look uh, for? Oscillators, I tend to use oscillators most of the for looking for overbought and oversold. Uh, Favorites? Yeah, I mean, my my standard ones, I would say RSI and sort of stochastic kind of just like, you know, and like MACD, I look for a little bit of the momentum too. I've never been great at sort of reading MACD entirely, but I do look for divergences. I do like that helps yeah. me when things are making a high, but it's really kind of diverging. I start, mm-hmm. I just, it's again, it's one of those risk managements. You should be asking questions about that high. Is it, is it, mm-hmm. is it? is it safe or is it actually on its last gasp, right? Right. I mean, yeah. and we've had some examples over the last few years. We saw this, I think, a little in some of the software stocks, right, too. Like they said they were going up. They made their tops like in, you know, on lower volume, on on MACD divergences. Like, and you're just, ooh, like, that's why I say, like, this was, this has been the craziest market because I feel like I was in one of our morning meetings <clears throat> back last year. I mean, God, last year is now 22. I want to say it was in 2021. I made the comment at one point because we do a we do like a quarterly technical review where I'll well I'll do some chart reading like for for everybody and kind of go through these things and and I was just pointing out in some of the major indices and a lot of these big high flying stocks I was like I would put these in the CMT exam like how yeah. good these top examples are I mean yes these are like textbook I mean they're these yeah. are what you put in like to this is what a head and shoulders looks like, <laughs> like I mean like like this is like it, like it was maddening I was like this is like these are so like look terrible right? yes but so that's the so I think when you some of that you don't always get them it's not never it's not always that obvious right like sometimes it's yeah. way on, more obvious than it is but that was about the exact time that uh newbie traders found out about the word leverage Patrick. <laughs> yeah. No, so, so coming back to your point about sizing, yeah, so I do a, a lot, actually. So I'd say there's a couple different things I use to think about sizing. So the first one I use is I run, as I say, I think I think the key, for me, the key to active management, the reason somebody pays you for active management is not to be, to have access to factors that you can buy cheaply, right? So, mm-hmm. so if you are running against the benchmark, you should be running idiosyncratic risk against that benchmark. Uh, so you want whatever process you're running, should live inside your idiosyncratic risk footprint because that because if you're delivering excess return through idiosyncratic risk then that's a meta factor that they can't be purchased so right so that to me that's like that's you know from coming to work in the morning like that's the value i'm trying to create for clients right is to give them access to an excess return they can't buy elsewhere and so to me so the fundamental of the portfolio construction is driving as much idiosyncratic risk as i can in the portfolios so the reason i bring that up is because that's the first place i start with sizing is to look run optimizers a couple different ways to ask the question based on what i own right so if you've got a, a list of stocks in a portfolio and this is one of my Dave's heard me drone on about this over the years, mm-hmm. like way too much. One of my pet peeves about the industry is the there's everybody talks about how they pick stocks. Nobody talks about how they size them. Right. Mm-hmm. Even like there are there are shelves in the library filled with books on how Warren Buffett chooses stocks, but there's not one book that talks about why he made one position bigger than another. Like it's just so sizing and and when you ask ninety nine percent of active equity managers, they'll say something like conviction. 
which which is like okay <laughs> whatever that means <laughs> yeah like, uh, which is sort of just i feel good about it i guess so yeah. i feel like i've, I've always tried i always try to take a try to be a bit more scientific to to how you're thinking about portfolio construction so the first place i start is as i say running optimizers to sort of look at contribution to risk and understanding like do you have are the you know if a stock i own is much less volatile than other things I own and much less correlated to other things I own, then its starting position is much bigger than the average thing in the portfolio, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So all right, because just just to make it, just to make it contribute equally in risk space, right? Because we want it to be kind of pulling its weight in in risk terms as a part of the, my, my overall kind of risk budget. Then I'd say like starting from there, then it, that optimization will say, well, this should be your biggest position. This should be your smallest position. If I turn some like maybe 10% of the portfolio over, what would it trade at the margin to optimize idiosyncratic risk? It would buy more of these, it would buy more of that. So then the next question after that is going to be a fundamental question, right? So why does it want me to size that one? So start asking questions about the characteristics of that. Ah, I'm very underweight healthcare, and this is one of the only things I own. Or this is an example. I'm, I'm not talking about being underweight healthcare right now. I'm just saying. Understand. It, it's just pick a sector. <laughs> Industrials, healthcare, technology. Oh, I'm underweight, and it's saying this stock should be bigger. Probably because I'm underweight that sector, so it wants to be bigger to neutralize the sector exposure to make your risk footprint more idiosyncratic. Mm. So, so you want to know. But then if you say, all right, well, but I I really like our thesis here. Like I think we're right. And and the next question is, and what how is this setting up technically? I think the technicals are confirming our thesis. So I want to say like, so I really want to actively take a risk here. So even though it wants to like make a position smaller or it makes to make a position bigger, I might choose to go against that optimizer in a very for my own set of reasons, right? It claims it, it should be a 100 basis point position, like, no, I'm making this a 200 basis point position because I'm going to step out and take more of the risk budget in this because I think the technicals are lining up. I think our thesis is lining up. Like these things are aligned. It's almost like a, it's sort of like scoring them, right? Like, does this have a strong yeah. event path? Does it have good, um, are the technicals confirming the story? Then then you can go ahead and like maybe push more risk to that position versus another, right? So that's So that's kind of like how I think about you know, position sizing as I go through, because you don't want, as I say, like most managers will talk about conviction or con like, you know, confirmation or where we're getting confirmation or where I have high conviction. And like one, these words are kind of undefined. Two, they tend to, they sound like confirmation bias to me. Like you just like the one that you already like, right? And so you tend to sell your winners and double down on losers. And like, you're just doing these things that you just, you know, like that's fundamentally like you really shouldn't do. Like if your top 10 stocks don't kind of make you a little uncomfortable, you probably don't, they probably aren't your best top 10 stocks, right? Like you actually should be almost like a little uncomfortable with your bigger positions. Yeah, and because it's because it should be the ones that like, you know, maybe your first impulse is to say, oh, I owned it at this multiple. Now it's much higher and I'm going to I'm going to trim it. It's closer to my target versus like the charts, a horse. It looks great. Right. And and like they just beat and like maybe you should be reassessing. Maybe your numbers are too low. Like you should go back. This should be at telling you to, to reassess this position, not sell it. Your first implication shouldn't be like the punt. It should be to ask more questions like 
why is this so strong? <laughs> maybe yeah. I'm missing something. Yeah. Maybe there's more to this than I'm than I'm thinking. And do like do more work around it because you may want to hold on to it longer. That's a and real quick on that same thread, you talked about looking at relative charts relative to the benchmark, relative to the sector. Do you look at your holdings relative to the portfolio itself? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I haven't really, but that's a good idea. Um, I should do more of that just to see which 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 ones are outperforming the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good idea. I don't want to take that back. I've got some homework right. to do. Fill yeah. the gap, ladies and gentlemen. It's a good time <laughs> for everybody, even our guests, learn something. It's <laughs> a good idea. Yeah, the, uh, I, I just want to stress this that the you know the way Patrick is describing how his team and how he uses technicals. I mean, it's the way I've seen it used best by fundamental managers over the years. And it's at the at the end of the day, it drives conversations on their team that they wouldn't otherwise be having. And, and it also prioritizes actions. And so, you know, it's not like you need to use technicals as your primary input, but it does things. And it, Tyler just mentioned it. And it's the reason we called this podcast what it is, but it fills the gap. And it brings in conversations and it forces oftentimes very uncomfortable conversations on the team. And, and that's one of the great things about, about what technical analysis does is, like I said, trend is trend and you can't deny it. And if it's trending in the wrong direction and if fundamentals do drive trends or make trends, you, you have to have a conversation around it. So that's that's critical. And then just also, you had mentioned uh, these some of these recent uh, software companies and tech companies that have these these uh, big explosive runs over the past couple of years, and they just kind of steamrolled the various PMs that tried to short them. Um, you mentioned Tesla, but look at that chart now. I mean, that is like, you, t- you know, t- Patrick, you mentioned if you were writing a book, these would be the charts that you would feature to, to demonstrate what a head and shoulders top is, but that's a perfect chart. That's a perfect top. And if you had a negative fundamental thesis on it, all you had to do is wait for the market to agree with you, right? And exactly. just wait for the top. And then when yeah. the top when the top yeah. happens, now you can make your 50, it's a pro- 60%. Like the top is going to be a process. It's not going to be this point exactly where it went right. up and up and up and then broke. I mean, there's very few of those in history. I mean, they've happened. Like, I mean, there have been examples of companies that turned out to be frauds or whatever, that literally the stock was going up and the next day it gapped down, like whatever, 40% because the sirens were wailing outside the headquarters. But like, that's mm. very rare. And the idea yeah. that like starting from like if you're gonna base rate your own act like ability to find these things, you'd say like those are extremely rare. So like yeah. you're not gonna like don't start from a place of thinking you found that. Like, right? Yeah. Just you know, so I feel like to your point, you can use that timing, that position, because it's it's a cost of capital question too, right? Like, yeah, you know, right. I mean, you know, a, a great investor I worked with um, years ago used to say like the value of information decays over time. And and so you had a set of information and people will buy something and hold on to it. And and then they'll say, you know, oh, our thesis is still intact and they'll just hold on to it. And, just, and you're like, you've got, and then you'll have it, you know, have underperformed for like a long time. You know, they'll own it in the portfolio. They go, oh, I'm a long-term investor. And you're like, well, that's fine. But like, are you waiting for like your three year holding period? Is this like, so if it goes flat for like three years, but then on the last day it gaps up, it was all, it was all worth it. Like I told you so. Yeah. I I mean, I, it feels like this isn't a very good use of capital. If you've stashed it into something that does, that's doing nothing. Like, I mean, in the hopes that at some point it's going to work. I mean, it should be all your positions and kind of to your point, Tyler, about looking at this, now that you've said this, you've opened my eyes to this idea. I mean, everything should be competing for capital in the portfolio and capital should be going to the things that are that are going to outperform, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and, you know, it doesn't make you a short-term 
traitor or something just because you're thinking about these things. I mean, ultimately, we are, you know, it's it's my it's like colleagues of mine though, say, you know, we're a long-term investor, three years. I was like, yeah, that's just 12 cells in the spreadsheet. This, right. That's it. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, I don't focus on the quarter. Well, it's only twelve of them to get to three years. I mean, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, any one of them is you know already kind of eight percent of your thesis. I mean, like. you know, one of the, one of the things I used to like to do when when I was at Fidelity and and, and uh, Wellington as well with fundamental managers, and of course, Patrick, you and I had many many conversations about this when we worked together, is to say like I, I understand your fundamental process. So tell me about in your process, where are you finding the most compelling ideas? Because I understand and I actually always appreciated the way you thought about markets fundamentally, what your philosophy was. So if I as a technician could match things that you're finding with things that I'm finding, that's sort of the home run. That's so as I was managing portfolios and I had to make incremental decisions as well. If I knew that this was an idea that matched in your fundamental thesis, but also matches technically, I, I favor that idea as well in, in the portfolios I was, I was managing. So when you do that exercise today, do you, what's what's like jumping out at you is, we've had a lot of turmoil of late. We've had a lot of, you know, of course we've hopefully just finished a bear market, we'll see, but a lot has happened in the past year. What's cropping up in your process to make you say, man, I got to take a look at this. So that's an interesting question. I think the one of the question marks on my mind, one of the things I follow as a, this is sort of a, I don't know if I'd call this a technical tool. It's a little bit of a technical tool, but I look at sort of global dollar liquidity to try to understand. I think it's a very good, like tells you a lot about the risk environment. Sure, right? yeah. So so I tend to sort of look at like how quickly are we growing dollar, dollar liquidity or is it or is it not growing? Because that's going to tell you everything. To me, that's like, you know, if their dollar liquidity is growing, then it's kind of a bull market and things can go up without having to buy without having to sell something else if dollar mm-hmm. liquidity isn't growing or it's shrinking then anything that goes up is at the expense of something else had to have gone down right so it's so, basically like, scarce versus abundant capital environment you, yeah exactly and how, how are you measuring it is there is there like a specific way to measure it or is it more just an amalgamation uh, and there's, of there's, there's, there's probably some ways to do it i just aggregate i just aggregate a lot of uh, M2 from major economies and right. convert it back to dollars yep. and just look at what are we, yep. what is it doing? But that's just like one thing I can kind of think of. Like, like I look at that and just say, all right, well, what is this and what's the environment we're in? Right. And, uh, you know, since the dollars come off a lot recently, dollar liquidity kind of has improved. So, so you can, you can sort of see how that's kind of coming into risk assets a bit, right? Like you can see you know, that that's helping to sort of like create a little bit of a question of like, you know, well, have we found the bottom? Is this year? Like to me, it's now a question of maybe, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's, yeah, I, there's, there, I think there are some, when I look at the, you know, the fundamental part of my head is still looking at, you know, we just had, we just came off an earnings season last season. We haven't reported fourth quarter yet, the third quarter was had the most misses and guide downs to be seen since 2020 and 2008 before that and you know and every time someone would bring up the idea of like our stocks looking through this i would say well do they go down on missed earnings they do they still go down yeah. if companies miss yeah. they go down like that's just companies that are coming out and guiding down are going down there's probably a few exceptions to that but for the most part everybody's kind of stocks are still going down when they when they take numbers down and then i look at say all right you know, we came off this sort of unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus 
over a couple of years. So I'm not sure that companies have a great sense of like where their baseline is, like for what the normalized demand is. So it's so even a fundamental investor who's talking to management is gonna have a hard time gauging like what like do they even really know, right? Like where we are, right? They don't have a great insight into where like necessarily what normal could be for their business. And I and if I look at the earnings and sales, like the two year stacked comparisons we're coming up against some of the toughest comparisons now over the next few quarters like if you thought third quarter was fun that was the easiest comp we get in the next four next three quarters so it'll be interesting to see how stocks react to and i think that's where the technician will be able to add a ton of value right is to be to wearing that hat because you want to be you want to read this price action because it'll tell you a lot about what you know, what is baked in, right? Because if we're up up against tough compares, earnings are already eroding. A lot of sectors are under pressure. There's going to be there's going to be more, you know, guidance misses. There's going to be things like that going on. And as that's happening, like you want to be trying to look at like how what what are we reading from those technicals? I mean, so example yeah. like day. I mean, you know, I've had some of my best ads right in the portfolio have always been, you know, stocks that report. Are down at the open and close flat right just classic hammer on the day right those uh, almost every time if you've already got a thesis and fundamentally you went into that quarter knowing well all right it's it might still be weak here but this is what we're actually playing for is this thing that's coming in the future right and that stock opens down and starts back up and closes flat you are like this it don't like the missed quarter isn't the isn't the story. The story was the price actions. It's telling you everything about your thesis that's coming. Like mm-hmm. there are other people in the stock who know they're they're also now share this view, right? It's like nobody we don't not we no longer really care about the short term information. Right. It's the longer term information right. that's starting to matter. Versus if a stock that goes down closes on the lows, right? It's like that was new information to the holders and they don't like it, right? So you better reassess your thesis relative to that. Looking back at the uh, that Tesla top I mentioned, you know, just again, just classical technical analysis. The top broke. The target was 100. It went to 100. And, you know, just looking at the, the data today, they just announced a 20% price cut on their models. The stock, I think it was down 5 or 6% on the day. And then it's rallied all the way back to the top of the range. And I think it was down like 94 bips or something. So... You know, if you believe that markets are forward looking, maybe that's what the top was all about. Maybe the top was all about the market looking forward and seeing all the stumbles that that Elon is going to have with respect to Twitter and and competitive environments and, and new models coming up from competitors. And so now everybody knows the story. Everybody knows the narrative. Everybody knows why they why there's something wrong with Tesla. And now all of a sudden the 20 percent price cut happens and the stock doesn't go down. And the other one that I'm really intrigued by is, I'm just looking at the chart now, but if you look at Bitcoin, it's almost recovered entirely where it was when the FTX bankruptcy or, or implosion started. Hmm. Yeah. So it, it basically went down and then it went sideways when we've, we've, you know, is this a fraud? Is this guy going it's to jail? All though, these other let me, things. Let me ask you a question though, Dave, because this, you'd yeah. be the first one. I, I'd been meaning to call you anyway, so we might as well do it for the benefit of the audience. Because I meant it. to call you, I meant to call you and ask you this question. Are you okay with the idea that on the days when the stock market seems to act really well, it still seems to want to go back to the prior leadership? It's not new leadership. So that's and a, that's I always a really, and I yeah. always think of this yeah. as 
like when we really do kind of put in a like a structural turn, the technician in me is looking for new leadership to lead the next thing because we've now had a, I mean, we're down 18% last year. It's a bear market. Like we, we've had a bear market like in here. Now, whether yeah. it's still in a bear market or not, obviously this is up for debate if it's still a bear market or it's over. But I always think of like the next bull shouldn't be this shouldn't be the exact same bull market it was. So I never know, like, should we really be reading the things that are that were, you know, on the days when the market's up, like the meme stocks are still top of the leaderboard on like on their on the best days. And I'm sort of like, does that what does that tell me about this market? Like, because the other question, too, because there's a lot of thrust indicators and breadth indicators that people are looking at and trying to correlate to history. And I think that's obviously that's something I do too. But I'm also trying to take into account what's different about this environment than the past because the level of option activity, the level of ETF, the options on ETF activity, like these things that are, I think, kind of distorting some of the classic signals that we might be used to looking at. Because I'm I'm just looking backward and thinking about there were many technicians last year who tried to call bottom in June because of some thrust indicators and breadth indicators that like, oh, well, like every time this happens, it's been like, and then it broke and it didn't follow through. And we're like, okay, well, I mean, that happens. Sometimes it's like the indicator doesn't work. It's okay. It's it's probabilistic. It's not certainty. But I just, it made me start to question. I was like, I wonder with this level of like one day option activity and all these things that are happening in the market differently now than we're in sort of past cycles, that it doesn't have some impact on our ability to read some of these things. Yeah, so I, I, for the very reason uh, uh, you're citing with respect to how environment has changed over the past 20 years on many levels, that is the very reason my when I do analysis, it's firmly rooted in what John Bollinger calls first principles or what I refer to as the inviolable rules of trend following. So regardless of what happens to breadth environments or or options activity or anything like that, it is it is literally impossible for a stock to go from 10 to 50 without going past 21st. I don't care I don't care who's in office, I don't care what time of the season it is, I don't care about any <laughs> of that, right? So if you if you root your entire process in those principles, right? Those yeah. concepts and don't deviate from from it, you'll be on the right side of major trends. You can't help but be on the right side. So the only the only way it can, you know, falter from there is if you just get in your own way and that's that's ultimately what happens. That's why people tend to struggle with whatever their strategy is that has a demonstrated process uh, stra- uh, history of working over time. It's it, but they don't experience it themselves. It's because they got in the wrong way behaviorally, right? So yeah. if you if you anchor to those things that are that that are that must happen, you'll you'll just be in a much better place. So that's one. Then the other one is is I'm actually writing writing a note on this to go out next week, and it's it's about this this notion of what's called the momentum crash. And we have I believe we've talked about this, and you've seen me write about it a bunch at Wellington. But yep, the yep. idea is that when a perfect example is one that when we had that the the bubble crash in ninety nine to two thousand two, we know two things. We know that when the market finally bottomed, one of the best performing sectors off the bottom was technology because that's the one that was priced to go to zero. And when the mm-hmm. incremental data point came into the market to say the world is not ending, well, you have to take zero out of all those prices. In, in right, you know, the zero wasn't in utilities. It wasn't in industrials. It wasn't in dis- discretionary. It was in tech. So tech. For the very reason that zero was in the price, it had to be taken out. So for that reason, on that first leg off the bottom, they outperformed. But then right. from there, they actually went on to underperform until 
the next bottom of the next bear market. Right. Mm -hmm. So when you see when you see meme stocks and all the stuff that led the last bull market come off the bottom today, it's because they're priced for zero. Right. There's no fundamental catalyst or fundamental. You you said it earlier, Patrick, and I just I'll say it again because it's so important. Fundamentals make trends. Right. So will these things have fundamental uh, trends that, that, that lead the next bull market? Who knows? You just try not to be too dogmatic and you're thinking about it. But if you markets transition today, as they always have, you'll very likely see a massive rally from the things that got smoked in the last bear market. That'll be like the, the shell game that the market plays with you. And it gets you to look at that stuff when the actual leadership is being embedded somewhere else. Right. Right. Oh, that's a good, that's a great way to, that's a great it's way. It's called a momentum crash. Yeah. That's great. Really for textbook case study purposes, I think everybody should pull up a chart of Bed Bath and Beyond, which may be the new meme stock of 2023. I mean, what an what an incredible well, that's a comeback. Up. I think it was a meme stock. And that, that's a comeback meme stock. Too. Yeah. yeah, that was a meme stock last year too. <laughs> yeah, I thought we put uh, that one to bed. Yeah. One at oh, So yeah, no, it's uh, you, you maybe when you were pointing out the inviolable rules, I was thinking back to it somewhere. Frank Tixer's ears are going to be burning because I brought him up twice in this conversation. But I was thinking back to another thing he had said years ago, which is, you know, if if it's going to make a 12 month high, it has to make a three month high first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's simple, but but simple, but true. Show me show me a 12 month high. That's not also a a two month high. Right. Yep. Patrick, go ahead. I'll I'll wait. (laughs) (laughs) We've obviously covered a lot about about your process and approach, which clearly you have a very sophisticated and and well-developed technical view. And I don't think we actually got to talk about how how you came to this, right? Most people don't just show up at a MBA program at a school like Babson and learn technical analysis from a professor. What what got you to start looking at charts and and developing this uh, this intrigue and and deep sophisticated approach? Yeah, I think it was just that early a couple of things. So early on, as I said, like I always observe people are all kind of closet technicians. Like everybody looks at, I mean, if you go to Yahoo Finance, the first thing at the top of the page is the price chart, right? Like it's mm-hmm. always the thing. And, and, and honestly, it should be because that's the one piece of information we can't argue about. Like that the price is the price, right? I can't do anything else about that. <laughs> like, so that's number one. <laughs> so, and, and then understanding that, yeah, I mean, there's, even if you broaden it out beyond human psychology, even if you take the players out to money flow from passive, added add in quantitative algorithms, all those things, but these are still have these have structural rules that they're trading around, and so you so you understanding and watching and observing the supply and demand in a stock is going is a part of is fundamental information. Like yes, that is fun. It's not it may be not company specific fundamental information, but it's certainly stock specific fundamental information yeah. or instrument or whatever financial instrument you're looking at right that that is there is information value in it so to me that's that was i felt like early on i observed that so i was just kind of like already curious about technicals and i had done a little bit of reading on my own and then just realized like just my personality is such that like i if I'm interested in something, I need somebody to make me a list and make me read it. (laughs) (laughs) So so there's no better way to get you to to get a list and make you be forced to read it than get a syllabus and sign up for an exam. Uh, Yes. I had heard through through friends that, you know, about the CMT and, and I was like, you know, that, that seems like, and then I actually, the thing that I think intrigued me the most was I had my CFA, I had an MBA and I was like, the number of MBA 
CFA CMTs, certainly at the time, there's probably more of them now, but at the time that was a very small number of people. So I was like, oh, well, that's kind of a, that's an interesting, like, just adds another, yeah, a differentiator adds something different, some element that I have that maybe others aren't, aren't adding to their process that will, you know, allow me to, to enhance what I'm doing. I think um, if you add, if you add bass player to that list, you're probably the only one on the planet. It becomes a, because <laughs> I, I, wait, aren't you, a, aren't you a black belt as well? I am, yeah. Oh, so my there God. Go. There you go. You are the only one that can check all those boxes. <laughs> Dave, I feel like we just fell into a Dos Equis commercial. We might be talking to the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. All right, Patrick, yeah, yeah. One, more, one more question that I got to ask. You mentioned working on these funds that you were an analyst for 25 years ago, and now yeah. you're sitting in the role of the, of the PM. That's got to be vastly different. How, how, how does it how does it change your approach to be running the money versus doing analytical work? Well, I still do analytical work. I can't get away from it. Um, I love picking stocks. I love you know it's great to have analysts that, that look for things, but honestly, I still run like I have this intrinsic value model. I still run the intrinsic value model on almost everything myself. Like analysts come and give me the pitch. I'll I'll run the model myself and get familiar with it and try to understand the story enough. I, I feel like I have to ultimately I own the stock. It's not, you know, I can't I can't outsource that. So if it's in the portfolio, I own the portfolio, ultimately it's mine. So I've I've got to I feel like I need to be kind of in the weeds on each each idea. And I love picking stocks. So I, I love finding stuff that the analysts aren't pitching. Right. Like I love to find new things and you know, there's always great charts that they're not paying attention to that I can go work on. Right? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so you know, so I so I'd say I still do a lot of that, which actually helps me be comfortable in a PM role, because if it's the less it's like I think I would be uncomfortable in it if I wasn't doing that, because then I'd feel too divorced from the information and I'd feel like everything was secondhand and you know, it just and it feels like you're not you don't know how to how to really establish like what our best you know, what our best positions really are, what our best theses really are, what's like, what's being confirmed, what's not being confirmed, like unless you're really in the flow of that information. But, you know, in some ways, too, I just I mean, I had a long apprenticeship to get here, which is helpful. Right. So I, I worked as an analyst on these strategies years ago. It was foundational to the way I think about stock picking. You know, Dave and I have talked about this a lot in the past, like this, you know, when so when I first worked on these strategies and the the portfolio, the original portfolio manager I worked for uh, left to uh, it was actually uh, Peter Higgins who ran the strategies and gone to yeah. Wellington. And um, when Peter departed, one of the things was to sort of explain you know, go through and explain like what do these strategies like we had to go like well you know, want to explain to clients it wasn't just peter it's the it's the team and what was the process and so i wrote a whole memo on like which which was partly what the team does and also was like what i think the team should do right like, it was, it was like well, here's what i think we do really well <laughs> so so we should just focus on doing that and, it, and i had done that by looking at you know what were the stocks we got right really really right and what did we what did we get what was what was right about like what did we get right about it we could you want to be able to unpack like, like everyone should do this at the end of their year anyway like any any pm any analyst should look at their own coverage their portfolio and like do a post-mortem on what did you get right for the right reasons what did you get kind of lucky on because yeah. you don't want to like you know and what'd you get and 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 what what valuable folds did you make because those are okay too like right yeah. like being comfortable with the fact like, you know, yeah, you, yes, you bought a stock. Yes, it went bad. And yes, you sold it at a loss. 
but then it's nice to go back and say like but that was the right decision like we would have lost more so like it would have been an even worse position so good mm. we, we that was the, that was a good fold we made a good idea that was a good idea so i think that's a valuable process point anyway but so i think just you know very early like establishing that process and then and once i wrote that that became kind of like what it's it, everything I've done since is just building on that memo in a way, right? It's like if this was this aspirational process, what can we keep doing to make it better, right? And maybe that was that, and and maybe that's getting a CMT and adding technicals more explicitly to the process. Is it is understanding more quant and adding that to the process? And that sort of came from you know run it working on opportunistic for years. You know, I remember you know the risk one of the risk people at uh, one of the risk managers at um, Wellington had pointed out like, you know, the stock selection on these strategies is really good, but there's this other factor stuff in the portfolio is, is, is undermining the performance. And that was just like eye opener to me. I was like, then let's just edit out the other stuff. Like, just like, let's wait a minute, let's just change this math. Like, like just focus on highlighting the stock selection and that will, should improve the outcomes. Right. Mm -hmm. And so. So that, that's where sort of the quantitative approach to some of the portfolio management became helpful. And honestly, it, it makes it easier, I don't want to say easier, but it makes it more manageable, right? Because mm -hmm. like, if you create more process around your sizing and your construction, there's less of this sort of like, it just having to, having to worry about like yeah. moving pieces around in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, you know, just, Add to your relative strength, sell your relative weakness, make sure that your positions are, you know, weighted such that they can contribute to your overall performance. The last thing you want to do is have a great stock pick that doesn't end up really being sized well. Mm -hmm. And then one that you overweighted that caused your that hurt your whole year. It's like you bought you picked you picked 80 stocks and yet that one crushed your whole year, right? You're like, well, that was not a great risk allocation then, right? So and vice versa, like that, you know, you you spent all this time picking out 75 stocks or something and then one was really the only reason your your year really worked like well that doesn't say a lot for your overall process then it right. just so yeah so patrick i um i think one of the big takeaways at least for me certainly but i, I hope others will, will take away as well is is uh just listening to this conversation just reminds me of how how fortunate i was to be able to have spent those years together working with you at wellington and i hope that comes across in this conversation and the in the passion that you always brought to the table, not just with investing, but life in general as well. I mean, all the all the other things you do outside of investing. But your level of passion and just your love for this business always rang true to me. And so there's a lot of people listening to the to this episode, all walks of life, but in particular, there's a lot of younger folks who are just thinking about getting into the industry. Yeah. What what would you say to them today in terms of just your your how you think about investing in in life in general and tying it all together and tying these philosophies together what what advice would you have for them oh that's a go that's a good one uh hmm. well, well we'll have to we'll have to bundle this we'll have to i have to tie this into some kind of like thing that we somewhere one of my other interests so like yeah like martial arts thing right would be like yeah, make yeah the way. absolutely make, make the way right so make yeah. the way is like yeah. so whatever you're given you got to kind of deal with right so you got to make the way so be you got to just be true to yourself and figure out figure out your own way don't there's not one way to do it there's there are thousands of ways to approach anything can, can you can you can you just elaborate on why that's important because that that was probably the most important thing you could have said right there i think i see tyler shaking his head so i hopefully i'm <laughs> right about that but what what do you mean by that because it, it is that important we talk about it all the time 
Oh, wait, your way. Find your way. Oh, oh, find your way. I mean, you got to you got to find out who you are as an investor, right? Right. And Why is that important though? Because you can never really confident. I don't think you can confidently manage money until you know who you are as an investor, right? Yeah. You're never going to confidently manage money trying to be a version of somebody else, right? You can learn a lot about what Buffett does, or you can learn what Dave Lundgren does. You can learn what other people do. And you want to steal, you know, and great artists steal, right? You want to take the things that resonate to you and apply them to your process and use them. But but you ha- it ultimately has to be your own, has to be your own yeah. uh, framework, right? Yeah, you can't borrow, so, you can't borrow someone else's framework. I mean, this is one of the things that, you know, it's funny, like we'll go, again, tie this back to my, when I, when I got my black belt, one of my friends asked me is like, so what do you know now that you didn't know at the start? And I was like, I know that I know nothing. <laughs> and here endeth the lesson <laughs> you're just like just yeah. always keep that like i was like you got your you got your black and then you're like oh that's just like you start learning here oh wow yeah, yeah okay that was just the that was just the ante to start learning yeah. and they told me that when i started <laughs> <laughs> no but I, I think that's when but and think about it, it's like that's what you know i mean obviously i'm aspiring to do higher levels of it and and that's you know you started learning that's all about customizing it to you like the things you learn early on, it's are the forms that everybody has to know. Right, so that's right. that's maybe that's the credentialing that you do in investing, right? Oh, you got your MBA, you got your CFA, you got your CMT, you got you did your credentialing. So you started with a bunch of knowledge. Now, how do you make it? How do you make it yours? How do you make it work for you? How do you play it to your strengths, avoiding your weakness, recognizing your own weaknesses, focusing on the things you do you do well, staying away from the things you don't do well. Like that's the stuff that you know, that I think is kind of the most important part. Fantastic. Yeah, to, to tie it back to music, uh, Beatles played tens of thousands of hours of cover band songs in bars in Liverpool before they ever oh, wrote their first song, yeah. right? Oh, my. Yeah, 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 yeah. Boy, you watch. You must have watched the, the Beatles oh, yes. doc. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any aspiring songwriter who doesn't watch just, even just this segment when McCartney's hammering out Get Back, like on the like, I was like, he's just mumbling. He's, yeah, he's mumbling nonsense words. He's just like trying to find <laughs> yeah. it, right? Yeah. And it's like, and most most people are like, I don't. I mean, I've written songs in the past. I'm not much of a songwriter, but I've written songs. And the self doubt and hatred that goes in. <laughs> Watching that felt it felt inappropriate. Like we were spying in on something that was deeply personal. I don't know how, <laughs> how you reacted, but I was like, oh, turn the cameras off. This guy's having a moment, you know. <laughs> Uh, and that's that's uh, by the way that's portfolio management. You just don't want to see the sausage get made. <laughs> that's right. Uh, hey, uh, Patrick, are we going to see you at the CMT symposium uh, 50th anniversary? Oh boy! I mean, I hadn't. I don't know. I yeah, maybe. All I'd the like legends to. are going to be there. Oh, might as well add one that. more. Does that mean if, you're going to be there? Frank will be there. <laughs> yeah, we'll be there. <laughs> All right. If Ghost in the Machine isn't gigging April 26th, 7th, and 8th, then uh, we'll we'll definitely see you in New York, Patrick. That'd be right, fantastic. I'm, able, I'm able to do that. That's my uh, that's my birthday actually, the 26th. So maybe I'll come down for that. All right, drinks <laughs> on you. <laughs> All right, drinks on you. Hole in one. Hole in I, won't, one. I won't disclose which birthday that is. <laughs> I think any any astute listener will be able to do the math from earlier in this. <laughs> I'm actually 22, Patrick. I've just lived a really hard life, so don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, me too. I shaved my head so no one can tell how old I am. <laughs> right. 
Very, very good. Thank you so much for uh, spending the afternoon with Dave and I. Uh, a lot of, a lot of lessons learned, and I know for our listeners, they're, uh, they're going to really appreciate your insights. Uh, this if, was a ton if, of fun, guys. Yeah. If they want to reach you or reach uh, Newton Advisors, should we direct folks uh, right to the website, connect with you on LinkedIn? Where, where would you send them? Uh, sure, both of those, I guess. I am on LinkedIn, and then yeah, you can go to Newton Investment Management, and uh, you know, the, we have some of our research up on the website. But yeah, yeah, fantastic. So, I think one Thank of the great things that I know we're cutting off, so maybe this is just for us. But uh, yeah, one of the things that Newton does really well too, because we we merged we merged the sort of the, the legacy Boston company in with Newton, which was based in London. So now we're this one global firm, which has been great. And uh, Newton had a great legacy in doing like a lot of thematic work. And I'll tell you, thematic and technical marries so well. Like if oh, you're man. trying to like if you're trying to look for big themes and you're not using technicals in that process. Or, like, you know, I, I'd say, yeah, that it's that's the, that because they're it's the ultimate trend following, right? Like themes right. are like looking for mega trend falls, like mega trends. And, and, the, and the market finds those trends before most investors do. And that's why I always say that the market is the best fundamental analyst on the planet. And it's an, it's a, a tribute to you to have the wisdom to just listen to the best analyst on the planet. Why not? Yeah, the the yeah. information is free. That's a good way to put it. Right. Just listen to the market. It'll tell you. It'll tell you a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All exactly. right, Patrick. Thank you so much. This was this, yeah. was, uh, this was a blast. Uh, it's like good old days, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in New York. Yeah, and we should catch up more anyway. I should be chatting yeah, for sure. I'll we'll love to talk about the market more. All right. Very good. Thanks, guys. Right. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. Have a great right. weekend. I look forward to listening to some music, Tyler. You're going to send me uh, some links. It's yeah. coming your way, my friend. All right. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Fill the Gap is brought to you with support from Optima. In addition to candidate study of the official CMT curriculum, Optima provides a full video course on all of the material that candidates need to know for each level of the CMT exams. Each course is broken up into modules ranging from 15 to 45 minutes, depending on the complexity and length of the topics being covered. Learn more at Optima.com. Mm-hmm.